On the evening of October 30, 1938, Orson Welles, the 23-year-old star of the hit radio show The Shadow and the Mercury Theater Company, aired a radio dramatization based on the H.G. Wells novel War of the Worlds. At 8 p.m. that Sunday evening, the Columbia Broadcasting System, otherwise known as CBS, announced that they would be presenting the show. In 1938, millions of Americans were tuned into their radios, most of whom were listening to a comedy sketch on NBC before tuning into CBS at around 8.15 p.m., where Orson Welles' dramatization of a Martian invasion was well underway. The setup of the dramatization was organized around what sounded like a very real report of the weather followed by some music. The music was then interrupted by Wells to report that a scientist at the Mount Jennings Observatory in Chicago, Illinois, had spotted several explosions on the surface of Mars. The music returned, only to be interrupted again by Wells stating that a meteor had crashed onto a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Shortly after, an announcer who claimed to be at the crash site began describing what appeared to be an extraterrestrial entity climbing out of a cylindrical metallic object. As the announcer continued to describe the crash site, he claimed to witness a large alien being with tentacles and with, quote, serpent-like eyes climbing out of the metallic object. He then went on to describe many of these aliens mounting giant walking machines and using a, quote, heat ray to decimate the people who had surrounded the crash to include a force of 7,000 National Guardsmen. The news report then went on to describe many more of these metallic cylinders crashing into Chicago and St. Louis. According to reports, Wells was creative with the use of sound effects on the broadcast, adding to the realism of the show. The actors of the Mercury Theatre Company also did an unnervingly good job of convincing the public of the terror they were experiencing as they watched and reported on the scene that was unfolding before them. Soon, the announcers broadcasted that mass panic had broken out near the numerous crash sites, with thousands of people attempting to flee the attacking Martians. Martial law was declared in a number of areas as Orson Welles continued to claim that the government was mobilizing to combat the invading Martians. The next day, newspapers reported that the fake news broadcast had caused a mass panic and published sensationalized headlines such as, quote, terror by radio, to describe the radio show's effects on the populace. As newspapers pushed the mass hysteria narrative, more and more people claimed to have heard the broadcast from the night before, and stories about the panic it caused continued to grow. Years later, a look back at the occurrence suggested that the medium of radio had become a serious competitor in the delivery of the news. To push the idea that the radio was not to be trusted with news that would otherwise be the responsibility of newspapers, some publishers created a story whereby that Orson Welles and the War of the Worlds broadcast was to blame for causing a public panic unlike any previously seen in the United States. As the claims of the mass hysteria from the broadcast circulated, the after story continued to grow with Orson Welles becoming the public face of the story and the one to shoulder the blame for the supposed panic it had caused. In truth, it was discovered that in all probability, less than 2% of all radio listeners that night were tuned into the CBS broadcast, with most listening instead to other channels. This was due to the Orson Welles program being scheduled against one of the most popular shows of the day, that being Edgar Bergen's comedy variety show. In the end, it is debated that many people heard the live broadcast to begin with. Of those who did hear the broadcast, most accepted that it was a dramatization of a work of fiction. In fact, there was no War of the Worlds panic. Not a single suicide was verified due to the broadcast, and no hospitals reported treating anyone for shock related to the broadcast. One person did try to sue CBS for, quote, nervous shock, but her lawsuit was dismissed. 
All official reports by those present painted a story that the evening of October 30th, 1938 was like that of any other. Although the FCC promised not to allow the use of the emergency broadcast format for dramatizations in the future, there were no official actions taken against Wells or CBS. Even years after these facts have come to light, this mythology, whereby the War of the Worlds broadcast caused mass hysteria in a number of cities, continues to persist. This episode is about the War of the Worlds mass panic. And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono. And Dr. David Morelos. So, Jessica. Yes. After the seriousness and the intensity and emotional weight of the last episode, I thought that I would like to do something a little bit more fun this time. Well, and it's kind of appropriate timing. I know that this was a case that you've wanted to talk about for a while, but given just kind of the current things going on in our society, I think it's actually is working out well that we're talking about mass panic. I agree. You know, I wanted to start off by saying that this reference is kind of a fun topic for me, at least. After the seriousness, you know, of the last episode, I felt like it was time to get back to my sort of eccentric self that's a part of being a transpersonalist. So let's keep it weird, right? Yeah, totally. Let's keep it weird. So I'll I'll admit that I'm a bit of a sci-fi nerd, like in the broadest sense. You know, obviously we don't do cosplay or anything like that, but... Not yet. Not yet, right. A few more weeks on quarantine and maybe we will. Ah, good point. You know, there are many who are way into science fiction than I am, but I was a huge Star Wars fan back in the day. I I did like Star Trek, especially The Next Generation. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, it was good. I I got you into it, as a matter of fact. We watched the whole series together. But I have also been intrigued by the steampunk stuff. Again, although we don't cosplay or anything, but the whole Jules Verne sci-fi roots that are there. And how fun it is to sort of look back at to what they thought the future was going to look like back then. Boy, were they wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, you know, at any rate, way back in 1984, when I was the ripe old age of eight, I got into this offbeat movie. It was kind of a comedy movie that came out and it was called Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, It starred Peter Weller as the main character, uh, Buckaroo Banzai, who is a neurosurgeon slash rock star slash scientist slash professor slash cowboy. Although my favorite character in the movie is one of Buckaroo's sidekicks. It's a guy nicknamed Jersey who was played by Jeff Goldblum. At any rate, part of the plot is how a group of aliens land in Grover's Mill in 1938, then trick Orson Welles into saying later that it was all a hoax so that they could land on Earth undetected. Oh, now I understand why you were so eager to do this case. Okay. (laughs) 
So that was the first time I had ever heard of the War of the Worlds broadcast. So the 1938 War of the Worlds panic is something that is also, not to put too fine a point at it, but as you mentioned earlier, dare I say relevant to some panic that may be occurring now. I'll let the listeners decide that for themselves, but the kind of hysteria that we experience over threats, either real or perceived, is something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. For me, the classic story of Orson Welles on the radio kicking off a panic where people actually thought we were being attacked by Martians is fascinating. To be sure, it would seem that 1938 was a much simpler time than the one we live in now. Newspapers ruled the day so often people would only learn of something occurring after the fact, rather than seeing something in real time the way we do today. Right. Yeah. So quick story. I remember seeing the Twin Towers fall in real time as I was finishing up my overnight shift at work and had the TV on in the background. It really makes me think about how different the rhythm of time is for people now, as opposed to, let's say, just 100 years ago. In a movie that I have referenced in the past, Mindwalk, which is one of my favorites, time is a central topic of conversation. I posted a picture of the movie poster on our Psychology Before Dark Instagram for those who are interested. But what is interesting is how the medium of radio was able to begin this change of our perception of time. The War of the Worlds radio show was acted in real time. It wasn't something that people read about the next day in the papers. So for probably the first time in history, people who were listening were tuned into something they thought was happening right now. So this is the first thing that interests me. How our perception of time has changed and how Orson Welles was able to make use of this new sense of immediacy through radio. Genius, in my opinion. I tie this back to the movie Mindwalk and the work of systems theorist Freehoff Capra because he opens up the entire discussion in the movie by starting with how we perceive time and how time then translates to how we perceive ourselves. In the movie, one of the characters refers to the sense of time of people who built Mont Saint-Michel in France as cyclical rather than linear or natural rather than mechanical. One quote from the movie in reference to this goes, quote, For them, Armageddon was the ultimate day off, not the ultimate off day. He goes on to say that, quote, The rhythm of their time was so different from ours, I don't think we can even imagine it. You know, those lines have always fascinated me. So the media of radio represented a real advance, as again, we started seeing the potential for news in real time. As stated earlier, the newspapers were very threatened by this and did a lot to try to question the credibility of radio. When the War of the Worlds scandal broke, the newspapers saw a golden opportunity to give radio a black eye by pointing out how radio couldn't be trusted the way the papers could. So right from the beginning, we have political and economic motivations. This is part of the so-called panic that War of the Worlds show supposedly started, and the papers jumped on it. They made it seem like the radio show, which was supposed to be a piece of dramatic theater and was announced as such, had caused neighbors to turn against each other, people fleeing the cities in a panic, so forth. But as we know now, that didn't really happen. This was a story invented by one form of media to damage the reputation of another form of media. The whole thing reminds me of a point that Michael Moore made in his movie Bowling for Columbine. You remember that movie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, you know, obviously the movie is overtly political. So I won't get into the politics of it, but there are some interesting points that he raises about how people respond to fear as a sort of mass hysteria. Moore does this by traveling to the corner of Florence and Normandy Avenue. 
in South Central Los Angeles. This is where the infamous Reginald Denny attack took place on April 29th, 1992. You remember that. Yeah, I do. Again, we probably watched it in real time on the news. Yeah. And then over and over and over again on a continuous loop, I'm sure, after that. Oh, yeah. I think that that was probably one of the most played news clips from that entire year. Of course. It was horrific. It was a horrific beating. And not to take anything away from Reginald Denny and the suffering that he endured, but, I mean, it came to represent pretty much the entire thing. The entire riot was pretty much focused on that one occurrence, I think. But for those of you who don't know, basically what happened was a group of men pulled a truck driver out of a truck and attacked him, leaving him unconscious and close to death. This was filmed by a news helicopter and reported again in real time as it was happening. It was then replayed hundreds of times on the newsreels over the course of the following months. Moore visited the intersection where this happened to take a look at the perception that most had had about the area starting with the attack. Because the images of Denny being beaten were so powerful, and we saw them so many times, the perception of the intersection of Florence and Normandy was that it was this sort of gang-infested, lawless, no-man's zone deep in Los Angeles somewhere. Moore, standing on the corner there for his film, proved that, in fact, it was a busy intersection, just like countless others in a thriving city where you could walk safely on most days. The point here is about how perception is shaped by what we ingest from media. So the war of the world story persists even though there really was no panic because the papers told us there was. Fast forward to today. Obviously, COVID-19 is what everybody is talking about. Every single person I know is being affected by it. No question. There is no doubt that this is serious business that's going to be uncomfortable for most and deadly for others. What is interesting is how this particular situation has evoked a response from us, quite unlike many other viral threats from the past. So there's something else going on here. I don't remember people panic buying useless items for SARS, MERS, avian flu, swine flu, Ebola, AIDS, MRSA, medicine-resistant TB, you know, all those scary diseases, which are scary. And all of them which have the power to spread, to kill us and our loved ones. So I'm not making light of COVID-19 as if it's no big deal, because it is a big deal. But just because something is a big deal does not mean it provokes an irrational panic response from us. Something about this disease does, however. Rumor, fueled by media a great deal, led to some panic buying of things like toilet paper, which is something I still don't understand. Which, okay, and can I just interject right there? Absolutely. So it's interesting because, you know, the media keeps telling us, and we go to the store and, right, there's no toilet paper there. And the media is telling us that everybody's panic buying toilet paper. And yet I don't know a single person that will at least admit that they panic bought toilet paper. That might be part of it. <laughs> they just don't want to admit to it. Um, I would definitely think that that's part of it. But at the same time, I agree with you. I don't understand it. Yeah, it's just kind of an interesting thing. And, and you may be getting to this, but it's like, you know, we do the things that we feel are within our control. Right. And so, you know, yesterday it was toilet paper. You know, now it's eggs. Can somebody explain the eggs thing to me? Oh, I, I cannot I, find eggs. I, I know. Yeah. It's the strangest thing. So there is a need to definitely be more judicious about public gatherings and personal safety in the midst of this. No doubt. I totally agree with yeah, that. Yeah, me too. But the level of panic and fear that it has created, again, seems to rival that of a sort of war of the world scenario, 
whereby the fabric of society is going to crumble. People are going to turn on each other as we battle each other for resources and all sorts of things like that. And yet, it's my guess that when this is all over, we're going to look back and laugh at just how irrational this whole thing made us. The best way to deal with a big deal situation like this is to remain rational, take informed and measured steps, and use common sense. In a situation like this, people usually do the opposite. They often rely on secondhand information, sensationalized news broadcasts that they watch uncritically, rumors, etc. You know, and in, like the War of the Worlds broadcast, when we go outside, we see just a basic and relatively normal day out there. Well, and you know, it's hard because in our society, we have to rely on the media to get information. Right. You know, and so it kind of puts us in this position where we're having to rely on these external sor sources and we don't ever really know what the true story is. I agree. You know, it's it's times when people begin to panic that we really see just how close to other animals we are, you know, as human beings, even though we're different than the rest of the animal kingdom. And it's it's almost as if we lose our ability to think rationally in the face of fear. So I'm going to refer back to the spiral dynamics model of consciousness for this with its differing layers of development, you know, that I've talked about numerous times in the past. Yes. So as I've said before, if everything goes right, we become more conscious over time and evolve out of more limited forms of consciousness. We start being able to see bigger pictures, identify with more diverse groups of people, and even animals and plant life. In other words, we start taking them into account. We start extending our circle of compassion towards larger and larger spheres of life. So in other words, we become less and less egocentric and more world-centric. That's if we move forward the way we're supposed to. Learning new things as we experience life helps facilitate this. So one of the interesting things about lower forms of consciousness is that even though we've evolved out of them, they always remain a part of us. They become dormant, so to speak, but they never really go away. In times of crisis or extreme stress, we can often tap into these more egocentric forms of consciousness to get through whatever challenge we're facing at the time. This is especially true when the challenge can be life-threatening. So think about being in war. We tap into a very directed and focused form of consciousness that is needed to remain alert and to survive. In other words, you're probably not thinking about eco-literacy uh, when you got bullets flying over your head. You know what I mean? No, I would say not. Probably not. You know, or existentialism or anything like that. Right. You know what I'm saying? So the ability to tap into these lower forms of consciousness can be very useful in certain situations. I need to protect myself and my loved ones who are in real danger. That's the thinking. So you think of, you know, the Walking Dead series, you think of Mad Max or any other kind of post-apocalyptic scenario of which there is no shortage of in Hollywood. They love to put those on. Oh, yeah. There is something intriguing about letting this much more full egocentric consciousness out of the more animal part of our psyche. We are fascinated with it. That's why we watch so many movies and read so many books about desperate people fighting for their lives. There is something about it that really appeals to this very ego-driven and animalistic side of ourselves. I would say that it, there is a certain kind of macabre, animal-like freedom there without the normal rules of society and limitation placed on us by things like our conscience. So the challenge here is to stay as rational and as conscious as possible in the face of threats. Obviously, sometimes the threat is so immediate that we just have to act without thinking. 
But in this case, we really have to take some time to gather information. A lot of people, with the help of the media, of course, dove into that lower form of consciousness sort of very quickly. There was no thought given to the idea that toilet paper is probably not going to help you during a pandemic. Calm and rational behavioral changes, however, will. So while this lower consciousness is important to have as a tool in our toolbox, it needs to continue to play second to the much more rational and higher forms of consciousness as we model through this mess. Ultimately, the War of the Worlds hoax was just that. The entire story, including the panic it caused, was a sort of made-up phenomena by the press. Most people had the sense to understand that this wasn't real. It was something fabricated as a piece of theater. Even way back in the simpler times of 1938, we were still able to keep our shorts on. There was no panic buying, no neighbors shooting each other, no suicides, and only one lawsuit for emotional distress that was filed against CBS for the broadcast, and that was dismissed in court very quickly. So you know that there's a really good episode of The Twilight Zone called The Shelter, right? Oh, yeah, that's one of our favorites. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. Yeah, great episode. There's so many good ones, but yeah, that's one of the best ones. Where um, there's a bunch of neighbors and they turn on each other when they think that they're being attacked by nuclear weapons. If you haven't seen it, you can catch it on Netflix as as I think all the old Twilight Zones are on there now. But the episode plays with the idea of how we lose our rational mind when we panic. At the end of the episode, Rod Sterling makes a statement to the effect of, quote, In order for civilization to survive, we must remain civilized. And I've always been fascinated with that statement. Well, and, you know, your view on this is very interesting because um, we didn't actually talk a lot when we were writing up our notes and doing our research for this episode. And I feel like in life in general, you tend to be much more optimistic than I do. But for some reason, when we were doing our notes for this episode, I think that my theory is going to be a bit more optimistic than yours. Oh, okay. So we're going to kind of flip the script a little bit today. So that's that's kind of interesting to me. You know, this whole idea of mass panic has always been interesting to me because I feel like the media tells us that this is the expected behavior in emergencies or disasters. Right. But in researching the War of the Worlds and finding out that mass panic wasn't what actually happened, but just what the media portrayed, I started wondering, how common is mass panic really? My hunch was that while it can occur, it's probably not the most common response. I mean, look at our current situation with COVID. The disease has been spreading worldwide, many places are under shelter-in-place orders, and there are significant restrictions on social contact. Right. The media has portrayed people as panic buying, like you spoke about. And they've done stories about people fighting over supplies like toilet paper. Yet, as I said, I don't know a single person that said that they went out and stockpiled toilet paper. I don't know anyone who's gotten into a verbal or physical altercation over supplies. And I have not witnessed that happening at any of the places that we've been to. In fact, I've noticed the exact opposite. People have come together to help each other by sharing resources, offering to pick up supplies for people who are unable to do so for themselves, and been generally accommodating and helpful even at stores where things were in short supply. So what is really the most common occurrence, what is displayed in the media, or what I have witnessed or heard from those around me? There's actually been quite a bit of research conducted looking at human behavior during emergencies and disasters. 
There was one study conducted by Cantrell et al. in 1940 looking at the War of the Worlds in particular, and even that study suggested that of the 6 to 12 million people who heard the broadcast, about 2.5 million believed it was real, and 70% of those people were concerned or afraid, but hardly anyone fled. Instead, they contacted friends and relatives to check on them. Those few who did flee tended either to be single or they fled when their family members had all been assembled. Okay, so they actually took some time to make sure that their family was okay, and then they decided together, hey, let's get out of here. Right, the very few people that actually did flee, that was the case. Okay. Even those who fled continued to engage in rational behavior, and they fled in a non-panicked manner. And many, many research studies since then have demonstrated similar findings. It's actually more common for people to engage in altruistic behavior during disasters than it is for them to panic or flee. Disasters actually often serve to increase social ties, whether that be between family members, coworkers, friends, or even complete strangers. So why do so many people believe that we will panic? It's likely because this tends to be what the media focuses on. For those of us who are around for the LA riots in the 1990s, we remember the images of stores burning, people looting, and rioting in the streets. Is oh, that yeah. kind of what you remember? Oh, most definitely. And this is not the only example. Many of us likely recall the events in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, where again there were reports of increased interpersonal violence and looting. What is interesting is that while there is no denying that these things happened, there may be other explanations for what was occurring other than mass panic. First of all, there's been research to suggest that the same behaviors can be labeled differently depending on who's doing them. So while a white middle-class person in a middle-class neighborhood might be described as, quote, searching for supplies, this same behavior from a minority in a poor neighborhood might be labeled as looting. You know, just real quick, I remember specifically, I don't remember who it was. It was either uh, Letterman or Jay Leno uh, had brought that point up. And they actually had two almost identical pictures, one with a Caucasian couple and one with an African-American couple. And the captions under the, you know, of each were radically different. One was, and I'll let you guess which one, were procuring or finding things. The white couple. Right. Whereas the other one was looting. Right. The minority couple. Sure. And so, and that really does change our perception of things, how we label them. Additionally, if a disaster strikes in an area where crime rate is higher to begin with, a disaster would not likely cause crime to disappear. Rather, this type of behavior will continue to be perpetrated by antisocial individuals, disaster or no disaster. Finally, when looting and similar behavior does occur, researchers have found it is generally perpetrated by people outside of the community that it's occurring in. It's rare for community members to engage in this behavior in their own neighborhoods. So while the media loves mayhem and chaos, it occurs infrequently during disasters and emergencies. Calm, resilient, helpful behavior just doesn't make headlines. But there are a few situations where we see legitimate panic. When I think of mass panic, I think of fires where people have trampled other people trying to escape. So one example, I don't know if you remember this, David, was the Station Nightclub fire. Right. That was in Rhode Island in 2003. I believe it was the band Great White. It was. And it was the pyrotechnics that were used during the show that caused the fire. Right. And 100 people ended up losing their lives. 
230 additional people were injured, partly by the smoke and fire and partly by the stampede of people trying to escape from the main exit. So why did that happen? There is a classic theory of mass panic called the entrapment theory. This theory suggests people will engage in flight behavior if they believe extreme danger is imminent, if escape routes are limited or being restricted, if flight is the only path to survival, and if there was no one available to help. If you consider the station fire, it appears all of those conditions were met. However, most disasters and emergencies don't have all of those elements present. What research has found is people tend to actually underestimate danger in many situations, and it's more likely people will underreact, for example, by not evacuating, rather than overreacting in panic. So just think about how many times that you've been at school or at work, and you heard the fire alarm goes off. Right. What do you typically do? Oh, it must be a drill or it must be something set it off, but it's definitely not a fire. Right. And so most people don't evacuate when they hear the fire alarm go off. And so this was kind of the example that the researchers gave to illustrate that most of us will underreact. We try to explain it away. We aren't quick to assume that it's something horrific happening. Mm Mm-hmm. So if the vast majority of people don't engage in mass panic, why don't they? It's believed that our social nature and evolutionary drive to remain connected to others is what drives us to pull together and help one another during disasters. The majority of search and rescue missions are completed not by first responders, but by disaster victims themselves. Many victims are transported to hospitals by other victims, and in the aftermath of disasters, there are numerous people who want to volunteer their time or services or donate goods to help in the recovery effort. While some people will use disasters as an opportunity to steal or harm others, these are likely the same people who would seek to hurt others in daily life. Disasters don't create these behaviors in people who aren't normally inclined to act this way. So what about the instinct towards self-preservation? For some reason, humans are more inclined to band together rather than act selfishly, and it's likely because, in general, our best chance of survival historically has been when we remain together. A study by Andrea Bartolucci, published in 2017, looked at the behaviors of the survivors of the 2013 typhoon in the Philippines. What she found was that there were four general responses, each impacted by the degree of danger perceived by the individuals and the proximity to attachment figures or those whom the people were close to. So, you know, family, friends, coworkers, and so on. Okay. So for those who felt there was little danger and who were close to loved ones, they displayed what is called attachment behavior. They banded together with their loved ones, and once they were all together, they left the area of danger. They were helpful, but they engaged less with strangers than some of the other groups. Another group, who also felt the danger was mild, but who were not with their loved ones, they basically spent their time just trying to figure out what was going on. Like, they were just kind of confused. They were not really engaged in relief activities because of their confusion, but they did interact collaboratively with strangers. A third group was comprised of people who believed the danger was high and who were with loved ones. They did not leave the area. They were very active in the relief efforts, and they readily helped strangers. The fourth and final group were individuals who also felt they were in extreme danger, but who were not with people they knew. 
These individuals also generally stayed, participated extensively in the relief effort, and formed collaborative relationships with strangers. So what was interesting to me was that the people helped one another. None of the groups just left without doing something to help, and most people were willing to help strangers. It was also interesting that solidarity tended to increase when people thought the danger was high. This provided further evidence that when people are in really dire situations, they are more likely to stick together and help each other than run away, panic, or put their own needs first. And I think we're seeing this happening right now. Even though we are social distancing and not generally in close physical proximity to each other, people are banding together, they're helping one another, they're encouraging one another in many different ways. I think it really speaks to the resiliency of people, and it's a real light point for me in this time of incredible stress, illness, and uncertainty. So, I mean, so those are my thoughts. I, I kind of have a more, again, optimistic view of people, and, and I think that maybe that's why we like to watch these post-apocalyptic television shows and movies where we are seeing that very animalistic you know, um, very selfish behavior in people because it's outside of the realm of our experience. It's not something that most of us have ever engaged in or even likely to engage in even under dire circumstances. I'm inclined to really like your explanation. Um, I thought that it was really well researched, but more so, I mean, I, I like it because it's optimistic. I think that in times of panic, we all would want to believe that we would still do what is morally right and just, even when faced with dire situations. You know, so your explanations made me feel good. Well, and it's backed up with research. I mean, they've they've found time and time again that that is what people do, that they are altruistic in the face of disasters and emergencies, by and large. Now, again, the media is probably going to focus on those you know, um, extreme cases where people are engaging in interpersonal violence, where they're stealing and looting and rioting. But again, those are not likely to be people from that community. And they're most likely the people that were doing that before that. They were doing it anyway. They were doing it anyway. They and were this criminals. Just, yeah, they just create this just created, you know, the, the emergency just created another situation for them to display that behavior. Right. An opportunity. Right. In other words, they right. see an opportunity as criminals are wont to do. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about some social theory that I studied, um, you know, a bit in college. You know, everyone knows pretty much who Ayn Rand is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, so she's pretty popular here in the United States. She was technically supposed to be the sort of intellectual counterpart for capitalism that would stand in opposition to Marx, you know, Karl Marx and Marxism. So I'll, I'll leave it to, you know, our listeners to decide whether or not that's the case or not, if they want to study that. But suffice to say, Randian philosophy in many ways echoes this sort of free social Darwinistic approach that we are inherently selfish. And it's in many ways these selfish traits that help us perpetuate the species and lead to financial and social success and force people to do better and accomplish more um, by pushing us to compete with each other. At any rate, I also encountered back in college some uh, anarchist social theory mm -hmm. uh, as well that I thought was equally interesting. So, you know, I'm by no means an expert in anarchist theory, but I can tell you that there is a good deal of it around and there is a decent and an interesting intellectual backing 
to those who are anarchists in theory and practice. So there's a good deal to it. But the basic philosophy relies on the central idea that people will always come together to form mutually beneficial relationships. So that seems simple, right? Well, of course, you might say. Right. Of right. course, I might say. <laughs> <laughs> but where the anarchists really earn their title is the argument, uh, generally at least, is that people will form these relationships without any kind of coercive power to facilitate it or regulate it. So I had an old professor in college who used to say, I don't need the cops to tell me and my neighbors how to get rid of our trash. In other words, there is a push against the need for any kind of armed or coercive force to govern our behaviors as we will fall into these relationships that suit us naturally and that these will be beneficial to everyone. I, you know, I, I thought that was interesting listening to your thoughts. There, There is this sort of fundamental and morbid fascination with humanity being put into dire conditions and some sort of apocalypse and reverting to much more animalistic and selfish forms of consciousness, just like you were saying. Um, we see this everywhere in zombie movies about, you know, plagues, viruses, nuclear war, movies about resources dwindling, whereby we become these lawless bands of people roaming around. But... And as you said, this gets people into movie theaters. It gets them glued to the news. It gets them buying guns, etc. Fear is one of the best ways to control people. There is no doubt about this. So anarchist theory sort of runs counter to this idea. It argues that as humans, even in the most dire conditions, we basically band together rather than apart. So just like you brought up, those who would seek to destroy others or take advantage of others would probably have done things like that anyway. Right. You know, so, I mean, this this argument has some profound implications, I think, when applied to situations like war, where so many come back with severe trauma from being put into situations and called to act counter to the way they normally would, which would be to help each other rather than to destroy each other. Well, and you think about the military. Before somebody goes into war, they have extensive training. I mean, boot camp is about kind of breaking. I mean, it's not just about this, but it's breaking people down and building them back up. And it's really getting them prepared to go against what human nature is. Yeah. Yeah. There was a uh, um, a really interesting book that was brought up right after the Columbine killings um, uh, by Lieutenant Grossman uh, called On Killing, where he talks extensively yes. about that, mm -hmm. you know, about the differences in training and what it takes to actually train somebody to be able to kill another human being because it's so against what we would normally do. Right, right. So, you know, I just wanted to throw that in the mix. I think you're right in a number of ways. Contrary to media portrayals, everyone near where we live seems to be adjusting to the current state of affairs rather well. They're making the necessary changes in behavior so we can get through this thing. I haven't seen any panic, and I honestly doubt that we will. So contrary to what some of our so-called, you know, quote, prepper friends, you know, <laughs> and we have a few may think the evidence kind of suggests that people don't panic, they problem solve. And I guess that's what we wanted to share with our listeners out there who are struggling right now. I know Jessica and I see the sacrifices you are all making right now, big and small, and we're with you. We're proud of the way the people have been conducting themselves and we're confident that we'll get through this terrible time together. We would especially like to thank medical personnel and first responders, but also a big thanks to those who still work to keep basic stuff going. You know, I'm talking about sanitation workers. I'm talking about cooks, 
warehouse workers, truckers, teachers. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah, utility providers. I mean, there are so many people that are really keeping keeping us going right now. Yeah. I, you know, I just picked up my car from the shop. They're yeah. an essential. They have to keep cars on the road, you know. So a shout out to my mechanic. So thank you to everyone out there for all the ways that you have contributed to society in this crisis, no matter how small. Yeah, and I guess we'll see what happens, you know, in the coming weeks and months. But we really hope all of our listeners are staying healthy, both physically and mentally. And if you have some thoughts that you'd like to share about this episode, um, about COVID, or about any of our episodes for that matter, you can do that on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark. And you can also email us from our website. So if you have an idea for an episode, we've gotten some really great episode ideas recently and we're working on those. Um, But also if you just kind of want to share your thoughts, we love hearing from from all of you. So please reach out to us. Um, And as always, if you're enjoying our podcast, please let others know about it. Um, And thank you so much for listening. Please stay well. Please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks again for listening. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Jamendo.